When you asked me this question, I did think of a, like a, a, a mental blank the size of a life. <laughs> I was like, I, there's nothing. There is not even the names of my children because he's asked me if there's anything in there. So the answer is nothing at all, just deep space, emptiness. You know, like when you do a meditation app and you suddenly are like, yes, there's nothing there. I'm in that constantly. <laughs> but then, of course, you start thinking, oh, what is there? And you like tap the back of your head and you're like, uh, sitting on the front step thinking of a plan. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's, main, <laughs> it's mainly 90s hip hop. Um, but yeah, there is, there is some poetry there. And there is some, um, yeah, sort of turns of phrases there. And then, yeah, we'll get on to what, I've, to what I've chosen, my desert island sentence, yeah. That's Max Porter. He's the author of four perfect little gems of novels, novellas almost. His debut, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, is about a Ted Hughes scholar and his two sons dealing with the loss of their wife and mother, as well as the intrusions of a large crow that has come to stay. He followed it with Lanny, impossibly somehow even richer and stranger and more heart-rending about a boy who goes missing and the chorus of the town who are searching for him, and art and innocence and ancient timeless nature and parenthood and so much more. Then came his bonkers, loving, horrified portrait of an artist in The Death of Francis Bacon, and finally his most recent book, Shy, about a troubled teenage boy facing his last chance. Max Porter is a true original. Compassionate, smart, spiky and funny. And I don't believe for a second that he ever approaches a question with an empty brain. 90s hip-hop? Absolutely. But emptiness? From Max Porter? I don't think so. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams and this is Read This a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. In case you can't tell already, I love Max Porter's work. I was lucky enough to interview him a few years ago and was in awe of his brain and his words. Properly starstruck. So when thinking about writers who might join us to share their life sentences, he sprang immediately to mind. When we say life sentences, we're talking about a pretty straightforward premise. The idea that for all of us, there are phrases, mantras, earworms, random quotes even, that form part of our personal and professional lives, that follow us around when we're daydreaming at traffic lights or spur us on when we're facing that existential dilemma. Sometimes they're profound, sometimes they're just the flotsam and jetsam of the brain. And in the case of someone like Max Porter, sometimes they're an insight into a creative process. You strike me as a writer who, amongst your many gifts, I think one of the um, beautiful things about your books is the role that voice plays in them and the role that kind of fragmentary voice plays in them. The way that character and worlds and deep feelings are kind of conjured up with little juxtapositions of words and little repeated phrases. And so it seemed to me likely that you, Max Porter, are a man who carries some phrases around with you in your day-to-day life. Yeah, no, I do. What's funny about me is that I'm an immensely musical person. I, I listen to music all day. I write musically. As you say, my books are polyphonic juxtapositions of found phrases. But maybe because of a result of my teenage years, I have a terrible memory for language. And even weirder, I don't actually listen to lyrics. I write lyrics for people and I love to read lyrics and I am obviously 
as haunted as the next person is by good quality writing in music and, and elsewhere, and in the lyric poetry particularly. But I don't really listen to song lyrics. It's really odd. It's just yeah. background noise. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of the time people would be like, ah, oh, you know, that's you know, that's one of my favourite songs, I know it off by heart. And I, like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sing you the whole of Mr Bojangles. I just don't know the words. It drives my wife mad. I mean, your work is suffused with kind of conversation with earlier writers and earlier voices. When you were first identifying as a reader, did phrases jump out at you as distinct from... I mean, clearly you didn't learn Mm. them rote the way some people do, but was it language that captured you or was it the kind of ideas and you didn't hear the lyrics? I feel like I've always been an immensely physical reader. I'm not at the mathematical end of the spectrum of sort of writers that can control the complexities of plot or narrative arc. I'm at the I'm at the drum circle <laughs> end of things. You know, I'm from the oral tradition. So I read like a hungry person looking for what is edible or like a, a, a blindfold person walking through a house looking for a safe path forward. So I read and read and then I wait for the thing to hit me, to land. So it's not that I uh, it's not that I necessarily can remember those things then, but I certainly remember the feeling. Like so, I remember how I felt when I read Hughes for the first time, or Dickinson, or when some of the brilliance of Shakespeare was explained to me, or or indeed, you know, when I when I first listened to Nina Simone or or Gorecki, you know, I remember that landing like Tetris. The universe clicks into place within me because of a certain insight or epiphany offered to me by the quality of what I've heard or engaged with. It's like a nerve or a, um, or, or a register that, that, that is ready to be activated. And, it, and when it is activated, you're flooded with this sort of gratitude, obviously, but also something to do with the appetite, something to do with, it, with a kind of spurring on, a forwardness, to that another, another human being has discovered in you this thing that you couldn't articulate or didn't have a name for. And the reason I've chosen a sentence that I've chosen, which we'll get onto, is because that happens every single time I think about or read that sentence. Its power renews itself like a rechargeable battery. The more I contemplate that sentence, the wilder it becomes. So it's like a sort of articulation of my quest in life, you know? How much is that experience that you're describing a generative one? Like, how much do you get that feeling and then want to either reproduce it or want to create it for others when you feel it? Totally. It's a 100%. It is the generative thing. I'm like a, a, um, what's it called? I'm like a parasite, yeah. So I come out of an exhibition roaring with the desire to paint. I put down a book I love and want to go and play with language. Um, that's what it's all about for me. I, I I need to be knocked around or knocked back or shown my own appetites or potential for innovation in, in the work of others, yeah. And I can do it for myself. If you lock me in a cell with no books, I will do it using my imagination, using my using my remembrance of, of, of encounter, be it with language or spiritual things or whatever. But yeah, that's it's that's a really beautiful question because that's exactly the effect it has on me. And that's why I perform my books live, because what I want is for everybody in the room to be infected with or take from me or be given a sort of permission from my work to go and do the thinking or the feeling for themselves. Max Porter, what's your life sentence you brought to us today? Well, do you want the fun one or the serious one? Start with the serious one and then we'll finish on the fun one. 
so my serious one is is this as as you know as I said to you I don't memorize poetry particularly well I probably could if I tried I have seen people recite their poems and felt that it is one of the greatest skills on earth I talk about this all the time I saw Alice Oswald recite Memorial at the Edinburgh Festival 10 or 15 years ago and I have never been more impressed with a human being. I've never thought that the human being was cooler <laughs> than when Alice Oswald read for 91 minutes her Iliad poem and all you could see was just a slight tapping of the foot and a clutching of the thing and out came this litany of, of Trojan dead. It's just mad. And so I'm sort of ashamed that I can't remember things and I carry that around a bit like the shame of only being able to speak one language. Anyway, when I first read this line by Emily Dickinson, I felt the land bridge in my soul connect. I felt like tectonic plates moving within me and it felt like an, an opportunity to be in love with language for the rest of my life and that language and the human brain working hand in hand could achieve a godlike power on earth, a, a, like a momentary spiritual betterment or miraculous something miraculous I guess is what I'm saying and it won't have that effect for everybody you have to find your own line right I don't know what it was about this anyway the line is and I use it in the uh, epigraph for my first book that love is all there is is all we know of love it is enough the freight should be proportioned to the groove mm. and I read it and I was like hmm Wow, that love is all there is, is all we know of love. That's, that's really big. And that, that needs me to do some thinking about what, what, what she means there. And then, and then I sort of think, wow, that, that is really, really complex and fits into various different categories of thinking about faith and human capabilities. And, you know, so I just, I, I just love it. And then the way, that, the, the way that she then says that it is enough, that is such a radical proposition, that is, is as big an idea as faith, right? The idea that people that are that are like crassly atheistic and just take the piss out of people of faith as if they believe in a made-up God have so missed the point of what faith is, right? And I say this as a you know as an agnostic, but I I do think it is so so extraordinary to posit that 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 relationship between everything we can possibly know of a thing and the thing itself in action. That reckoning, that dialogue between the entity itself and our capacity to understand the entity is enough, is a life's work, is all, all love, death, all shagging, all money, all corruption, all kicking dogs on the street, all building boats. It's all in that, I think, is brilliant. And then that the freight should be proportioned to the groove. Because that's her genius for me, is that suddenly an, a physical image lands in my mind of a thing that fits but what is the freight and what is the groove? And how has the groove been made and, what do, and how does the freight adapt? In the way I love my children or in the way I read or my ambition as a, as, as a, as a look at the attention I pay things will always grow. And the, the freight will always find its perfect groove if my framework is love. And I just think it's, it's symphonic in its complexity but in its beauty as well it's like to me it's just it sounds the most stunning note i'd say it's like the tuning fork that is hit and reverberates through everything i do now and that we are able to find those things for ourselves and that it might be one of a hundred two hundred things like that that operate in my mind what a joy what an absolute joy you know
and that she's able to pass that on. And so when people come to me and, and, and say that comparable effect has been had from a line of mine, I just think, well, this is it. Perhaps in this kind of mycelial network of human beings having ideas and some voicing them and some writing them down or some choosing painting or poetry or, or dance or sport or whatever to voice these recognitions, these, these grabs at understanding that creates this huge web, this life support system on, from which we can all drink. It's just so humbling and incredible. The other thing about that Dickinson line and about the way it sits with you and the way you can revisit it again and again in life and in love and in creativity is that for all it's deeply thoughtful and profound, it's a fixed point, but one that opens itself up rather than closes itself off. Exactly. And it doesn't dictate the terms of its own interpretation. To me, one of the sort of formative things that ever happened to me in my life, I was playing um, clarinet when I was a kid. And my teacher took me to a jazz improvisation day and I wasn't good enough. I'd only been playing the clarinet for a little while and she was like, don't worry, you'll be fine. And we were in a room. So the guy would play a chord or whatever on his piano and then everyone would go around and they'd have their whatever, 16 bars to improvise. And it got round to me and I was like, I can't, I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do it. I, I just, I'm panicking. And she's just like, just sound it out, man. Just sound out the one note. You know, let just open up your instrument. And so, you know, there were these guys being like... And I just went... <laughs> for 16 bars. And it was rad. <laughs> and everyone was like, yeah, man. And I was a little 10-year-old boy in a room of, of adults. And she just gave me... That Dickinsonian, like, she's like, don't worry about the machinations of man. Don't worry about competition and virtuosity and all those things. You have a thing that makes a note. Blow the note. And I think that's what that Dickinson fragment does, as as do many of her fragments. As do fragments of Keats and Sappho and Anne Carson and whatever. Like, that's the point. You find the fragment for you. But for me, that's what it does, is it's a very simple motif played humbly on a piano and out of it flows every possibility and it is enough it's enough we'll be right back the saturday papers food editors are some of the country's leading chefs including andrew mcconnell otama carey david moyle and karen martini let them guide your cooking when you sign up to Schwartz Media's free weekly newsletter, The Food. It features the latest recipe from the Saturday paper, along with a selection of seasonal dishes suitable for all cooks. Subscribe today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Max Porter's enthusiasm for literature, and for art in general, is utterly contagious. As he's mentioned already, live performance of his work is something he embraces. Last time I interviewed him, he read a passage from Lanny, and honestly, the voice work he did was worthy of Monty Python. Play and performance are a big part of his process. But so too is collaboration. Uh, I said rather wankily in an Irish newspaper recently, 
uh, it's my raison d'etre. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm really like I'm, a, I'm, I'm really addicted to it. I'm smitten with it. Everything I do at the moment is is with others, through others. I, I'm uncomfortable on my own, and the only reason I would now work on my own is to get enough of a thing done that I can take it out and knock it against other people or feed it through someone else's machine. In, in fact, you know, my next work. The, the novel I want to write in, in a year or two's time, my sort of big serious book, will be a solitary thing and I'm, I'm fearful of it. Because for me, the collaboration is about taking the work profoundly seriously as a communal activity and taking yourself in that ecosystem much less seriously. And I think in that you make the best work and you learn and other people learn from you. So there's a sort of um, orrery of creative exchange and generosity that spins out of anybody's control and becomes a completely new thing so yeah i i with musicians actors um artists i'm just completely in love with what it's taught me and with the surprise of, of finding something new and also share, i love to share risk and i love to i actually love as well to share success like I love to share a breakthrough with someone like if I've done something that I think is good I've only got myself to, to think I've made progress and then to, to discover that a, a reader or a prize jury or a critic fundamentally disagree with me and think I've written a load of shit so there, there's this sort of boredom for that for me in the literary model whereas with the collaborating it's like you say to one another there's something here, or this is working, or we we made good work, or we made work that didn't quite land, but it was interesting to try it. Like that, to me, is a, is a higher editorial model. Uh, is is progress, you know? What does it mean though for having a sense of completion with an artwork, um, a moment when it's finished? I mean, your books aren't closed objects because of that process you describe. You know, you and Killian Murphy go and approach Grief is a Thing with Feathers and it becomes a completely different work. The live performances around Shy that you've been doing. Again, the book is a kind of object, but the work transcends that fixed point. Does it mean that you'd never feel like your books are finished? Yeah. And I didn't know that at the time, but I, I wrote that. You know, the last line of Grief is a Thing with Feathers, everything unfinished, beautiful, is carrying on. It's the market that finishes it. It's never the artist. You know, the, the gallerist packs up the painting and flogs it and the publisher packages up the book and sells it. We're never done. And I think anyone that thinks they're done is, is, is bought into the economic imperative of that particular art form too wholly. Like I wrote a film in lockdown for Killian and we put it on at Manchester International Festival and it's work we're really interested in and proud. It's nowhere near done. We want to do it from the other side. We want to do it as a diptych with another piece. We want to perform it live with an orchestra. It doesn't matter whether any of these things ever happen. The point is that the work is set up as a question machine for how we feel in, in this life, in the in these bodies. It, you know, it's a piece about guilt and masculinity and shame and apocalyptic environmental feeling and stuff like that. That Like, to say the app done that tick would be mad. So, yeah, I mean, these are the things that interest me. These are the things I'll take to my novel about a Victorian politician. These are things that I'll take back inside when my kids get home from school and try and engage them with. You know, uh, it's never done. I, I mean, I love that, that sense of play, that sense of kind of joy that comes from creativity about exploration. But the other impulse that seems to me to be omnipresent in your work is around your characters, and it's about a kind of love and a kind of 
tenderness and protectiveness of your characters. Shy is a prime example of this. And I'm curious about whether you're a writer who feels a sense of responsibility to your creations mm. that makes a constantly unfinished space feel stressful. Maybe. You know, I'm a 20th century baby, right? And, and I'm a nuclear obsessed baby and I and I a lot of the fiction I was raised reading was a sort of killing field really because it felt it ought to be you know it was the question of can we write poetry again after the holocaust and there was this sort of sense that the novel is a tool of our of our pushing at, at how the abstracted reality of the living person in the novel is this do they have a real consciousness or are they a statistic and can we slash them and burn them and, and take voyeuristic pleasure in their harm or and I think, therefore, I suppose I was more interested in the kind of... I think I'm interested in tenderness as a force. Um, and, and so I am... My critics, particularly in the right, on the right, would always posit this as a, as a facet of my sentimentality. But for me, it's sort of the opposite. It's a sort of refusal to buy into pre-existing modes of denial about what violence actually means or loss or death actually mean and actually investigate them and then come out the other side and decide, sort of pro-choice, that you hug the teenage boy in need or you celebrate the, the pain that is within you following the death or you, you find the missing child actually or imaginatively. A refusal to buy into the kind of economy of pain being visited upon another. Um, I, I think about it a lot and I have, an, uh, I have a kind of conflict within me that is my critical brain um, thinking right write interesting good books, write hard, dark, difficult books, and my and a sort of inner desire to strike I always talk about the major core, but to strike in my reader or in my audience or in my loved one or in my friend or in or in the, the stranger I meet on the street, to strike in them this sort of kinetic opportunity like you were describing at the minute, this flicker of energy that I think is is kindness. And when you hit your major chord it's almost always at a personal or intimate level rather than at a societal one. Like the, the hope that you're willing to share is at a human level, not at a cultural, political, it's down to single people. Is that the kind of optimist you are? Well, it's certainly the kind of pessimist I am. I am low on hope. The great formulation of hope of our era is Rebecca Solnitz, and she's more optimistic than I am. Uh, and I don't mean that necessarily on a planetary level. I think I mean it on a human level. I think the tendency... Right now, right, let, let's look at it. We must speak freely of this, right? The scale of our cycle of violence, our hunger for violence, the scale of the inequality, our absolute hypocrisy as regards the value of one type of skin versus another is so startling it, it whirs into such immaculate life every time like it because of course we have impulse towards kindness and care and ingenuity and invention as human beings but it does also appear that we have a spin cycle of brutality and barbarism and disregard for our own future and for our own fellow human being that is our superpower it appears to be the thing we do best i can't believe we're where we are at the moment in the world like it seems to me that peace long term this thing i've obsessed with my whole life this 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 concept that human beings might educate oneself through atrocity and move toward a path of betterment the fact that that appears to be not only 
laughable, but actually just irrelevant. We haven't even got time to think about that because of the sheer scale of the violence that's happening in the world. it, it, It blows my mind. But also what Solnit posits, you know, and she's right, is that the hope isn't a sort of a sort of romantic glaze you put on things in order to stop doing the hard work. It's an axe, you know, she says in her new book, it's an axe with which you break down the doors that we've built. And I will lend every fibre of my being to that effort for our generation and the ones that follow. But I, I you know, if you ask me to say what I think is going to happen, <laughs> I think that human beings are going to continue to hurt one another until the end. Uh, and and as a result, hurt the planet because it's the same thing. It's a choice. Um, but that yeah, as you say, that 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 thinking doesn't. I, I hope it's not uh, morbid, and I hope it's not making my books depressing to read. I hope that it can coexist with this, uh, whatever you would describe my theme, like a, a sort of deep secular celebration of joy, pain, and ecstasy, organically intertwined, the life system of all things. You know, I I, I hope it's I hope it's not miserable. No, that, but it's not for the exact reason that you identified earlier. I think creation is really important. I think the making of things, the making of art, the kind of um, mm. the sharing of the imaginative and the empathetic, not as an engine for betterment, but just as something in its own right. I suppose that there's something in the, in the meeting of acceptance of what there is and restlessness uh, of yearning, uh, of hunger for what what we don't yet know, that crystallizes all the things I love most about humanity. I think I, I increasingly I think a lot about gratitude, and I, and a gratitude that doesn't necessarily exclude uh, rage or activism or um, gruntlement or crossness, whatever you know, like a, a sort of implicit, shared, accepted, glowing bafflement at the state of things that doesn't stop us being tetchy, weird, interesting, eccentric people at the same time. I want to let you go. I'm going to get your second sentence quickly and then I'll let you run away. Okay. Uh, Well, it's also, it's really, I was thinking of a terrible pun um, (laughs) where I would tell you what my sentence was and then I'd tell you another one which was longer and you'd say, Max Porter has just served a longer sentence. (laughs) 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 I couldn't workshop the pun quite right as you can tell. No, no, I, I can feel that it's coming and don't worry we're going to hit it <laughs> um, oh yeah so what this is is um, this is my ultimate earworm so if I am blank and if I am in a traffic jam or in the middle of the night or trying to think of a song to sing my baby to get them to sleep or whatever the, the one that always appears is absolutely baffling for some reason my default song private dancer Dancing, fun. I don't know why, but private dancer always comes into my head, right? So that's the fact. And then I was telling this story, <laughs> and I was, I was telling it at a family occasion, and I said, it's really weird, of all my all the things I'm involved in, my default tune, the thing that always comes to mind is, what's love got to do? And my brother went, well, you've changed your tune. <laughs> Oh, Max Porter, I could talk to you for hours. It is such a treat to get to sit and chat to you again. Oh, that's nice. Sorry I've rambled. No, so no, no, you cut haven't it all at all. Out. Clara, cut it all out. Oh, no, Cl- Clara is ruthless. It's, it's going to be a three-minute episode, and it's going to be sharp. <laughs> it's just me going, private dancer. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's just you singing. That's all we're going with. 
Max Porter's books are widely available. His music, thankfully, is not. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, a couple more choices from my personal Christmas wish list. And first up, it's the new Michael Cunningham. He's best remembered for the hours, but to my mind, my favourite book of his is A Home at the End of the World. It's an earlier novel that's this beautiful portrait of a friendship. His newest book is being touted as the first big COVID novel. It's called Day, and it's split across three different time frames during the pandemic. I'm not sure what my appetite is for pandemic reading right now, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And my second pick for the Christmas list is Roman Stories by Jhumpa Lahiri. I absolutely adore Lahiri's work, and every time she has a new book out, I'm first in the queue. The new book is a collection of short stories, which she is an absolute master at. That's it for this week's show. And we only have one episode left for 2023 before the year finishes and I lie face down on a beach somewhere. I did happen to notice on the Apple Podcast app the other day that we have 185 ratings. That seems stupidly close to 200. Give us a Christmas present and get us there before the end of the year. Rate, review and share. Sorry for being that guy. Read This is produced and ruthlessly edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.